collective power. We are out to transform trauma system-wide by presenting a mirror of the system to itself. Each month, we focus on one system, and each episode, we focus on one person's experience and their angle. At the end of each month, we bring all those angles together to reveal a new big picture. Stay with us to discover our collective power and what's possible for our city, for our country, and our world. I am Dr. Rita Fierro, and I am your host. Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining us for another episode of Collective Power. I'm excited to have as our guest today, you know, I say that every week because I am excited every week, Jeanette Vega. Hey, Jeanette. Hi, Lita. How are you today? Good, good. It's such a joy to have you with us today. So Jeanette is a sister. It feels like a friend. We've known each other for a few years now. And it's really exciting to have you here. You're the co-director at Rise Magazine, which is at Rise, actually, that is an organization that focuses on parents for parents, and in particular, parents involved in the child welfare system. I'm going to let you say all that, but one of the reasons I'm excited that you're here with us today is because we're continuing to explore how the system is one and how different aspects of the system are connected. And I think as someone who's been advocating for parent voice for so many years, you have a really, really, you know, unique insight. So thank you for being with us today. Great. Thank you for having me. So before we dive in, can you tell us a story about yourself that will have the listeners know you a little bit more the way I know you? Yeah, well, like Rita said, my name is Jeanette Vega. It's actually Jeanette Vega Brown because um, I am married officially. I am a proud mother of four awesome boys. I have um, Remy, who's 23, Xavier is 16, Zachary's 13, and Joseph is six. Um, so imagine the crazy world I have over here with four boys. I am a parent who was affected by the child welfare system myself personally. Um, about 17 years ago, um, but that's just to state that the system has not changed. The way they support um, and interact with parents is still the same now as it was then. And a lot of my case lasted three years, unfortunately, because of the dynamics of me being a woman of color. And I lived in a low-income community at that time, and that was reasoning in itself for the agency to remove my son from me. I have been doing advocacy work. Two years after my son came home with me and really just thinking about what does it mean to advocate in the world of different systems that harm families. At first, I was really scared to get into this work and really thinking about what good would I do when I just really was that kind of parent that just hated everything about all systems because I just felt that once child welfare got involved, other systems got involved in my life also. Most people would think that because I'm from the Bronx and from New York that I've already had system involvement in my life, but 
I have never had any system involvement. But when child welfare intervened, I ended up facing the housing system, criminal court system, different other systems like substance abuse and mental health got involved in my life. And it really wasn't until I got with Home for Good and really connecting with Rita a few years ago that I was able to start connecting the systems in a way how they all make cause harm toward families. And sometimes people don't even realize that all the systems are connected and how we should be working with the systems in order to make sure that they're working in a way that they connect with each other also and that they share some of their power with parents. So a lot of my work currently is about training parent advocates and parent advocates are parents who have had lived experience in child welfare to really be the voice to navigate what the system change looks like. Really building from the floor down, which is different, right? A lot of organizations where you work at, usually the boss is telling you what the work is going to look like. But in New York City at RISE, um, our work is really training other organizations to think about how do you work from the ground up and start building what community wants to see and what do those changes really are from a community voice and implement it through policy and legislation. So Jeanette, what about your personal story? Has you still so devoted to this work? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, the personal trauma and stress that I went through all throughout those three years, as a young parent who had the child welfare case, I didn't understand the system. And I think that's what happens to a lot of parents that come into the system. They don't know what they're getting into, right? The system is really set up to help families fail and not support us the way it's intended to. And that was a reality that I did not realize while I had my case. I kind of just went through the hoops, right? Personally, they told me to do anger management classes. They wanted me to do mental health evaluations. They wanted me to do substance abuse and really and parenting classes, right? Which a lot of those services did nothing for me personally, but that's the way the system really works. So I really got into the work because of all the agony and the trauma that I went through. And I think sometimes when you're going through it, you don't realize that you're being traumatized or that you're facing toxic stress, because that's something I learned years later, that I was actually facing toxic stress. And the system was just throwing so much at me and all the adversities that I was going from. If, you know, child welfare doesn't understand that you don't just lose your children. When I lost my son, unfortunately, I was in HRA at that time. And I lost my food stamps. I lost my housing voucher, which ended up getting me evicted from my home. So all the way, everything trickles down for a family and all the adversities you get when you have a child welfare case is the way the systems connect. And that's what got me into this work. From my personal experiences, I think I can bring a perspective to um, other people who work in this profession in child welfare or in other systems to just really say, are we looking at the real causes of why families are getting especially child welfare involvement. Why are our youth and our families of colors the ones getting incarcerated and are mainly in the um, criminal justice system, right? I was just talking to someone recently who said, did you know that there was more mothers incarcerated than there are men? And I was just shocked, right? I had no idea that there were so many mothers who were incarcerated due to child welfare charges, which is another reason how the systems connect to each other 
once child welfare gets involved, then you get a criminal case and then all those things just keep adding up. So that is exactly why I've been doing the work all these years is trying to be a voice for the parents that don't think they can be a voice for themselves currently and to elevate the parents that do have a voice to be the loudest voice they can be and make some systematic changes. Jeanette, I have like so much respect for you and the work you do and the persistence with which you do it. And I think recently you wrote an article that I read around how you never thought you'd be the person to work in the system. And yet here you are. And as I hear you talk, you know, and feel free to say you don't want to talk about it if it doesn't work for you right now. But like, I have this yearning for your heart and your belly. And I'm just wondering, like, with whatever you're carrying in your heart and your belly, like, how do you find strength to keep going? Because you've seen a lot in your personal life and you must continue to see a lot. Yeah, I mean, I think when I first started, I used to attend the Child Welfare Organizing Project. That's where I started becoming a parent advocate and really learning more about the child welfare system. I think when I first got there, I was just like, I'm coming in as a parent affected and I'm going to attack this system as hard as I can. And I'm going to fight for every parent that I can possibly fight for. But then getting into this work more deeper, I actually just read that same story to my new parent advocate training that I'm training 10 parent advocates. And we're training them to work in the system, in foster care agencies, which is a different dynamic. And I read them that story because I think the reality of a parent who has had a child welfare case entering the agency as an employee of that agency is the most difficult thing in the world. You don't know the trauma effects or the triggers that are going to happen to you. When I first started working in the foster care agency, I went in and I don't know what it was, but like my stomach hurted all the time. And I really couldn't understand, like, why was I feeling so sick? So like after the first week, I was already taking like sick days and I just kept thinking like, I'm just sick because it's a new job and it's different and it's hard. But the reality was that I was being triggered and traumatized by the way the other staff would talk about parents. As an advocate, you would hear other workers talking about parents in a very disrespectful manner, in a way where they were belittling or judging parents. And as a parent affected, I'm like, wow, is that the way workers talked about me behind my back? And it just felt like, how can I bring a culture shift to these agencies to start thinking about that? We're not here to fight against each other. We're really here to work as a team. And if everyone's ultimate goal is for families to reunify and stay together and not separated, like, why are we badgering our parents, right? So it was really, really hard. And I think the reality of working with the system is going to be for hard for any parent who's had their experience um, personally with any of those systems. Um, but when you think about child welfare, I also work with foster care agencies and preventive agency staff to really help them think a little bit differently about how they approach parents and what engagement really means, right? So I just want to take a step back a little bit. I know your brain, right? You're a huge visionary and you think fast and talk fast. I just want to make sure that our listeners have the time to like digest the depth of where you're going. Yeah. So what kind of things, when you said that the workers were being disrespectful, what kind of things would they say about parents that would be triggering for you? 
I mean, I think it would be simple things like, oh, this parent didn't come. She don't really care about her child, you know, without understanding, like, you know, maybe it's hard, you know, as a parent who had a case, like I used to go do my visits and the worker would always say, it's going to get easier. It's going to get easier, but it doesn't get easier because every time I had to leave that visit with my son, it felt like I had a removal happening for me every week. And sometimes you don't think about that. I've had caseworkers say like, this parent is angry and I'm just not going to deal with her. She has a bad attitude. But when your child is removed from your care, you should be angry. Like that is the first emotion that should come out of your body and your mouth is that I hate this system because they just took something away from me that was precious. Like for me, my son was my world, right? And when you hear workers talking about parents like that very indirectly, or this parent doesn't care about their child because they're not attending a visit. Did we ever stop to think about what this visit feels like for this parent? This parent might feel shameful of walking into the agency because everyone in the agency is looking at you as this bad monster, this bad parent who did this bad thing to their child. And like, that is the feeling that we get when we walk into the agency. So imagine being an advocate and working in the agency and hearing those things. Like I used to even have to take like cry breaks. I used to call, I tell my advocates, you're going to get cry breaks. And they're like, what is that? And I'm like, when you just feel like you can't take the emotion anymore and you just go to the bathroom and you like cry for five minutes and you try to console yourself a little bit because the reality is that I just wanted to curse all the workers out, right? Um, but you don't want to lose your job and you want to learn how to collaborate with people. But it's hard as an advocate to sit in an agency and hear other people talking very negatively or disrespectfully toward the parents that they're supposed to be supporting. I'm, yeah, I'm just stuck on cry breaks. I can feel the intensity. I mean, I can't feel it the way you can feel it, but there's like an intensity of that. How did you come through? Like, how did you go from cry breaks and wanting to punch people through, right? To actually being where you are now, which is like you, and I don't mean so much what are the things you did, but like, how did you cope? I'm curious to know if there was a turning point where you went from maybe being more of a victim to the situation as to seeing yourself as the powerful human being that I know you to be. Was there a turning point and how did you get through it? Yeah, I think that there was definitely a turning point. I think for me, the first year of being an agency advocate was the hardest, but I had to figure out how to console myself because one, I didn't even know I was going through trauma experiences because I didn't really understand trauma to the effect that I understand it today. So I was just going through emotions and I just thought like, maybe I'm bipolar, right? Like maybe I have something going on that I just don't understand. But the reality was that the turning point was when I took my own power and I said, they brought me in here to do a job. And my job is to advocate for parents. And if that means I have to challenge every single person in this agency, then that's going to be my job. Um, so what I started to do was I actually developed my own support group at the foster care agency, and I restricted workers from attending. That kind of made it a little bit like, you don't want us in your group. And I'm like, nope, this is a private conversation. And it gave me the power to really separate what I was feeling from the workers. Um, and I was also able to have just like meaningful conversations with the 
I'm not going to say all of them, but there were a few workers that I was able to just say directly, like, hey, you know, you're making me feel some kind of way when I hear you say this statement. And the workers were um, very open-minded to say, wow, we didn't think about it like that. And then really thinking about having a culture shift conversation, like, how are you going to talk differently about parents? Or are you going to like still do it, just not in front of my face, right? Because it's not the point of doing it in front of my face or that I can hear it. It's about like, stop doing it all completely, right? We need to have positive ways of talking to parents, talking to a few caseworkers and just being like, I'm feeling really uncomfortable. I think having support from the supervisor was a real good strength for me. Like my supervisor was like, we brought you here for a reason. We brought you here because we want to uplift parent voice. We want to make sure that families get what they need and that they have someone who they're going to be able to turn to for that support. So I definitely think I'm very close still with my supervisor from the agency. She is a very close friend, but it was because of her guidance and acknowledgement of like, this is the change this agency needs. And she backed me up on any challenges that I had. So when we had the conversation, she was the one that arranged the conversation with the caseworkers. She said like, who are you hearing this from? And I didn't want to be like a tattletale, but I was like, you know, Miss so-and-so, Miss so-and-so, and Miss so like Miss Red, Miss White, and Miss Blue. We need to have a conversation because I repeatedly have heard them say it. And I want them to acknowledge what that makes me feel like as part of their team, right? Because I was supporting some of the parents um, that were on their caseload. And that conversation really helped ease the tension. And it gave me the opportunity to really just say, like, I'm not comfortable when you guys say certain things. The phrase birth parent is something that I made sure, like, the agencies, I'm like, you know, that's disrespectful to parents. Stop calling us birth parents. Call me Miss Vega. Call me Miss, like, Fierro. Like, or call me Jeanette, right? Like, do not call me birth parent because it makes parents feel like they're a case number and not a human being when they're going through the system. But definitely the support of my supervisor. And the empowerment of myself to say, I need to fight for these parents. And the only way I'm going to be able to fight with them is if I'm transparent and I'm very honest and real with the other staff to say, this is not how I'm going to work at this agency. And it took about two and a half years to implement the support group. And the workers, I believe they still were talking trash about the parents, but it would be less in front of my face. They were showing me that much respect that they wouldn't be um, doing it in front of me or I would not hear it as much as I did before. So what's your vision for what's possible? Like, I know that, I mean, there's a vision you have for New York where most of your work is, right? Like there, but there's also, you work with advocates all across the country. And I know there's a vision that you're also holding for our country. So tell us a little bit about what that vision is. What do you see possible? Well. I'm actually the assistant director for training and policy at RISE, not the co-director yet. But I think for New York City, what my goal is, is really to elevate parent voice into building community networks so that community can tell RISE what it is they want the fight to look like and the fight to be. And really thinking about how we're moving our funding from system I, and I say systems because I use all plural of all the systems, but really focusing on child welfare in New York City and how all the funding that's going into the child welfare system can go into community-based organizations 
that will actually be able to give families what they need when they need it versus the fear of separation from their children or the surveillance of having child welfare in your life, really shifting the way on um, the money and where the funding goes so that as much money as child welfare spends on foster parents, they can spend that same amount of money in giving families what they need on the grounds and avoid child welfare involvement, right? So that's really the bigger focus of RISE is how do we shift our work to community organizing and start really working on legislation and policies that reduce the harm that families get in New York City. I am all over the place, so I talk to people all over the world, but I am also the Equity Parent Advocacy Chair at Home for Good, which Rita actually runs with all of us. We're all in partnership together. And there, I think the great thing about Home for Good is really the diversity of thinking about how all these systems connect, because it's not something that I've never seen any other organization do, is really say, it's not just child welfare, right? It's not just criminal justice, like housing is a connection, it's mental health, substance abuse. The Department of Education plays a big role in all these systems. And really thinking about how nationwide we can start creating a structure that other people are also thinking about all the systems and kind of building the same thing of community building from the ground up, really asking families, you know, everywhere. I think right now Home for Good is focused in Philadelphia and really broadening Philadelphia's work. What does it mean to build a home for good within Philadelphia and connect with other organizations um, that have the same mindset as Home for Good and that want to understand how these systems connect so that we can start dialogue and we can start thinking as a collective, how are we going to use our power to change the system to benefit the well-being of families everywhere, not just in New York City? So how do you see that work going? Like, how do we build collective power in the face of, of systems that are collaborating, like, as you were saying, in the harming of families and not the supporting of families, right? Like, how do we work together? I mean, I think the first step of working together is just really recruiting or bringing awareness to what the organization is doing and really recruiting other people that have experiences in different systems. I always like to say that parents who've been affected by, excuse me, all these multiple systems are the parents and the ones that have the solutions to make the resolution on what transformative looks like for these systems. So really thinking about how do you connect parents who've been affected by these multiple systems and then also other stakeholders, right? Legislation, city councils, people who are directors and supervisors and CEOs of these organizations and having conversations, do they understand how these systems connect? Um, and how are they going to think about how can these systems work together in order to bring a perspective of change? Given all your expertise of, of these years, like working in the system, but being an advocate for parent voice and strengthening parent voice, what do you think people who work in the system have to give up? What are the challenges in terms of mindset, right, that have to be overcome to be able to see this bigger picture that you see of all the systems transforming together? Yeah, I mean, I think the main thing is power, right? We're here for a collective power radio show, right? And I think that is our main focus is to make sure that we are highlighting that power needs to shift or be shared. That is something that doesn't happen. I think the reality is that 
white privileged people think that they can just make policies and make rules that could trickle down to communities like black and brown communities and they think that's the way life works but understanding what the reality is on the ground is different from what other people think so i think other people again in privileged situations sharing that power um humbling themselves to understand that the world has changed and that policies that are in place 20 years ago are not working for families today in 2021 right things are different and really thinking about how do you change that power dynamic by elevating the voices of those that are affected so that other people who have never experienced our experiences get a little feel like today, right? I hope that people are listening and get a little feel of what it was like for me to be in the child welfare affected parent, what it was like to work in a foster care agency and how hard it is to make those system changes when people still categorize you as the parent who was affected. Like right now, when they call me that I don't categorize myself anymore as a parent who was affected, I categorize myself as a parent who is uplifting other parents' voices because that is what we're doing, right? I am sharing my own power with my other parents that I work with to say, it is not about what Jeanette thinks, it's about what we think as a collective. And that is the way to share power and build and actually make real changes that are gonna support and help families thrive. Where do you draw strength, Jeanette? Strength, I think my strength comes from my children, even though they drive me crazy, like COVID is real, they're home all day. So I'm like, ah, I need to get away. But I think <laughs> my, I always say they're my biggest strength because if it wasn't for me not having them, I wouldn't fight for parents as strong as I fight because I see the reality of what parents go through. As a parent of four children, like I know how difficult it is, right? I've been through evictions. I've had to move in four years. I had like six different apartments because I didn't have the income to make sure that I can um, pay the rent. There were so many things that were happening and so many obstacles that I had to overcome. And the reality was that even though there was a system there to help me, we were scared of reaching out to any system because we thought the system was going to take our children. Even as a parent advocate and assistant director at Rise, and I've been doing this work for 15 years, Still today, a lot of families say that if they have a struggle, they rather isolate and figure it out on their own instead of reaching out to the systems that are there to support us because they're not gonna share their power with us. They're just gonna belittle us. They're gonna judge us for our situations. Um, and then most more than likely, they're gonna separate us from our children, right? But definitely my boys give me the power to wake up every day to fight for other parents so that they can wake up with their children next to them in their houses, right? Not to go through the three years that I went through of like sadness and aloneness. Yeah, can you give an example of how the systems are connected that can like really drive home how this all works as one? Yeah, I think the perfect example is the Department of Education and child welfare and criminal justice, right? Those three right there, and those are like from personal experiences. I think, especially now during COVID, the Department of Education is calling in a lot of neglect cases for educational neglect, and the system is taking the cases. Instead of the system saying, this is the child welfare system, instead of the child welfare system telling DOE, how are we going to partner together 
to figure out how we can support parents through COVID and not make educational neglect cases? How are we going to train Department of Education staff to understand that they are a support to their community, right? When you go to a public school, you would think that that school works for that community and that's what the Department of Education should be doing. So when you mean child education neglect, basically the kid's not showing up on Zoom. So it's virtual school, the kid's not showing up on Zoom. We don't know whether the family has internet or not or Wi-Fi or not, but yep. then the parent gets reported for educational neglect because technically it counts as the kid not being in school, just like it right. used to count as truancy if they didn't show up at school, at the physical school. So that's what we're talking about, right? Yeah, it's the same thing. In New York City, I believe the number is 10 absences and then automatically like the DOE calls a child welfare case, right? But they don't understand that they should be the community to support parents versus calling in child welfare. So that's like a real direct example of how the systems connect with each other and how they have the power to actually collaborate together to support families differently, but they just choose not to see how they can share some of that power and tell the Department of Education, like you don't have to call a child welfare case for everything. You should have a process of giving families resources and being a support to those families at first, right? Like if you can't resolve their situation, then there's other places, there's preventive agencies. There's just so much in community that is not being utilized. And that's sad. So, so far in terms of possible solutions, you've given us like different insights at different levels, right? So you talked about people collaborating across systems to possibly shift the whole. You talked about how organizations and agencies can hire parents to have parent voices and to have parents offer solutions. What happens at the individual level? Like what can people do at the individual level, whether they're parents themselves who have had cases open or individuals who want to contribute, want to make a difference and care about this topic, but don't know quite where to go next? I mean, my advice would be to get involved. Definitely reach out to Home for Good, reach out to Rise. You know, there's, we can share our emails just to make sure we can share our websites just so that people can get awareness of what's out there. I think parents always need that support for each other. So as an individual, sometimes I just connect with other parents that I know are going through the same situation just to be connected, right? Because the one thing that people need the most is support in their life and you can never have enough support. So as an individual, you can always just figure out, are there parents in your community who are facing similar situations? Do you know a friend who had a child welfare experience? Do you know a friend who was incarcerated and that's your experience? And just start building that network from the ground floor of just having conversations together, being in community together, typing up child welfare systems, typing up Home for Good, typing up Rise on your Google, and just starting to start getting more involved and aware of what this means in nationwide and in New York City so that people can start getting more involved in different ways. There's a lot of other community organizations and committees and um there's different coalitions that are working to elevate parent voice there's coalitions that work on legislation on policies 
Um, right. So really thinking about what's out there and how you can get involved is simply by just reaching out to me or to Rita or to other people that, you know, who may be connected to um, different systems and just starting your own group of connection as individuals. And from that itself, you will become a powerhouse because I like to say the bigger the number, the louder they hear you scream. And sometimes that's what you need, right? Volume and numbers in order to be heard in different places. And we'll definitely add a list of some organizations and our own contacts in the show notes. I love what you said about reaching out to people who have similar experiences. Oftentimes what gets in the way of that is shame, right? Like oftentimes we hide because we think the experience we had was so awful and the system often perpetuates the shame And so then we hide and we're isolated. And when we hide our experiences as traumatizing as they may be, we don't have the opportunity to link with other people's experiences, right? So I'm curious, do you have any advice for parents on how to overcome the shame of sharing their own stories with others? Yeah, I mean, I think that shame is real. Again, when I started CWAP, I was invited to a support group and parents were sitting there sharing their personal experience. And I was on the side like, whoa, I can't tell them what I went through, I think. But when you become part of that space, you automatically feel a sense of comfort. So for me, like I had a case for three years. A lot of family didn't know I had a case. I have best friends that didn't know I had a case because I felt like I did something wrong and that I should be hiding what I'm going through, right? But the reality is that the system punished me in a way that they should not have punished me for making a mistake as a parent, right? And I think, you know, opening it up to like not specific things, but just saying, are you a parent who wants support from another parent? Are we parents in Philadelphia? Like, how are we connecting as parents? Not categorizing specific systems, because I think that scares people. So if I would have went to the support group at CWAP and known that it was about people relieving their personal experiences of child welfare, I would have not went to that group. I went to that group with the perception that it was going to be parents, talking about parent situations and challenges that we have as parents, because it's called a parent support group. That's what it was called. So when I walked in, at first I was very like, nope, you're not gonna hear my story, that's too private. Or I was ashamed to tell people what I went through because it lasted three years and it felt like it was my fault. And when other people started just expressing themselves, they wouldn't make me talk. I think, and that's an important part of being in a group like that, was that they said, Janae, you can listen, you can talk, you can not talk, you can cry, you can scream, you can do whatever you're feeling. If somebody is saying something that's too much, you can walk out, like you can take a break. And no one ever pressured me to give a piece of me that I wasn't ready to give. And I just felt so comfortable because at finally there was other people in a place sharing the most hardest, difficultest parts of their life that they do their traumatic most experiences. But we felt connected through our pain, which is a different way of connecting with people. But we connected because of our pain was so real. And I think that's the kind of invitation you want to give other parents, right? Like, can we just be parents together? Because parenting is hard in general, and we don't get a guide of how to be a perfect parent. But when you have other parents supporting you, and you hear someone else say a story, like I said today, it might resonate with some of the audiences today. And they might be like, I want to talk to Jeanette. 
Like I want to be able to share that pain that I've been holding in for all these years and I've never found a platform to share that pain. Like we're opening up that space for you guys to say, reach out to me, Rita and Jeanette and say, I need to share this pain. Like this is tying me down because what happens is that you can't see a better future because your emotions get the best of you and you're always going to feel like a failure. You're always going to feel like you did something bad. But when you start talking about it, I feel so much better after being in that group. I feel like I'm not a bad monster the way they portrayed me to be because it's the system that's racist. It's the system that's oppressive. It's the system that makes you feel that you're a bad parent because you made a mistake or because you're black and you're brown and you're poor. Like that is the reality, but you don't have to feel that shame because there are spaces that we can create to be together and just like learn from each other is the main thing. It's been so great to have you, Jeanette. Do you have any last thoughts? No, just thank you for having me today. And that I hope that, you know, today we brought a perspective of openness, of shamefulness, of people understanding what shame means and that they're not alone, even though they may think they are. There are a few spaces, not just in New York City, but also in Philadelphia, where we can connect with parents and just have that space of conversation how can we be supports to each other is the main goal in everything I do. And how do people reach you? Oh, definitely. You can reach me at Jeanette at risemagazine.org. Thank you for being with us, Jeanette. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of Collective Power. If you'd like to be a guest on our show, recommend a guest on our show, or write for our upcoming medium publication, feel free to contact us at collectivepowermedia.com. You can also become a supporter and help us offset the costs of making the podcast for as little as $3 a month. To do so, go on our website at collectivepowermedia.com and click on the button that says Donate, Become a Supporter. Thank you for your courage to see the bigger picture. And until next week, drop the mic.